0: The introduction to 1 Peter, the man and his mission, verses 1 and 2. If you would, stand up for reading of the Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Now, the theme of 1 Peter is this, strength and comfort in suffering. There are 105 verses in 1 Peter, and a lot of them talk about suffering. A lot of them talk about suffering of the disciples. Peter is the one that is mentioned most often, and incidentally, Judas is the one that is always mentioned last. So Peter is always mentioned first, Judas is always mentioned last. Alexander White has this to say about Peter. After the name of our Lord himself, no other name comes up so often in the four Gospels as Peter's name. And he's a very significant person within the Gospels. Our Lord speaks more often of Peter than of any other disciple. He oftentimes blames Peter because of impetuous character. Sometimes he praises Peter. Sometimes Peter is reproved. No one ever intruded into Jesus life or making decisions as much as Peter. Remember when, he said, when when Jesus said he's going to have to go and die in Matthew 13? And Peter says, oh no, you're not going to do that. And then what did Jesus say to Peter? Get you behind me, Satan. You do not have the mission of God in mind. You have your own will in mind. He said harder things to Peter than he did to anybody else except Judas. Now, of course, the author of First Peter is Peter, Peter, and it's written between 63 and 64 A.D. Silas, or Sylvinius is the one who scribed it. You see that in chapter 5, verse 12. Now, this is the same Silas that was Paul's traveling partner. So he, he penned this for Peter. Now, the background, you have to understand that there was massive persecution going, going on from Rome. Nero was at his peak. And Nero is persecuting the Christians, and he is focused on the Christians for this reason. Rome burned. And most of the people in Rome were blaming Nero. Nero probably set the fire up to Rome. Now, because of the fire, the, the people in Rome lost everything. They lost much. They lost their, their idols. They lost their temples. They lost their shrines. A lot of them lost their lives, and many of them were left homeless and hopeless because of the fire. And so the people in Rome were now turning against Nero. So Nero needed a scapegoat. And you know who he chose as a scapegoat? the christians he's going to turn on the christians in turn he did and and nero persecution started in that empire and christians were crucified christians were put into the arena for entertainment eaten by animals lighted up on the roadways i mean it was an awful persecution so christians were the were the brunt of it and peter is writing this to encourage the Christians that were suffering at that time, who had been spread out all through the Roman Empire of Pontius, Galatius, cappadocia Asia, and Bithynia, all over the Roman Roman Empire, they are experiencing persecution, and it is intense persecution, and people are dying in droves. It's the written to strengthen them. He mentions that the letter was written from Babylon, in chapter five, verse thirteen, and this is code. This is a code word for Rome, a code word for Rome. Uh, They didn't want to endanger the Christians, and so he used a code word of Rome. Two years after he wrote this letter, Peter died (coughs) under Nero's hand, under Nero's hand. So the purpose of the letter, the purpose of the letter is this. There is escalating persecution that is going on. So his purpose is to teach us how to live victoriously in the midst of suffering. How do we make it through this walk on earth in the midst of suffering? Without losing hope, without becoming bitter, without becoming bitter, while trusting in the Lord through it all. And one of the things that helps you to trust the Lord and to make it through without becoming bitter is to look forward to his second coming. You know, you can make it through just about anything if you know it's going to end. You know, you get the flu and you're wondering if this is going to be it. Is this going to ever end? but it ends. You can make it through anything if you know it's going to end. It's the trouble is when you don't know it's going to end. That's the tension. That's the tension. So, and I want you to realize believers are exposed to a world system that is energized by Satan and the demonic realm. And you know what Satan's goal is? It's for you to become embittered, for you to lose hope, for you to become a poor witness to the world around you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to prove that the church is a sham and the word of God is null and void. And what we do is we say, no, we're going to trust you until we're out of here. We're going to stand against the enemy's schemes, and we're going to silence the critics by the Holy Spirit's power that resides within us. We will not fall for that. Now, some personal information about Peter. This is taken from Jensen's New Testament survey. Jensen says this, of course, his name was Simon. His name was changed to Peter. And and Peter means rock. So Jesus gave Simon a new name, pointing to his future status as the rock. He would be responsible for opening up the gospel to all people groups. And I'll mention that more in just a second. His birth. He was born, of course, a Jew. His father's name was John or Jonas. We see that in Matthew 16, 17. Peter had at least one brother. His name was Andrew. His hometown was Bethsaida of Galilee located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want you to realize something. When you are in Jerusalem, that is like the epicenter of education and knowledge in Israel. It's like going to Harvard, or it's like going to Princeton, or it's like going to Yale. It is the education center of the nation of Israel. Anybody born in Galilee were considered uneducated, and actually, our guide, Amir, when we were in Israel, says that the Galileans were known as the Galilean hillbillies. The Galilean hillbillies—they were—they were backwards. They were unsophisticated and they were uneducated. And they were looked down on. They were looked down on. Peter's education was probably an elementary education, one that a small Jewish boy would get. He was unlearned and ignorant, according to Acts chapter four thirteen. In the King James, the NIV says he was on, They was he was unschooled or ordinary. And this is in reference to him not having any rabbinical teaching, any deep theological teaching. Yet, what did Peter do? He amazed the rulers, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees with his knowledge. Why? Because he had been with Jesus. What a difference Jesus makes. His occupation, of course, he was a fisherman. He and his brother Andrew had a business, as well as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. His marital status is interesting. He was married but there's no indication that he had any children, which would be unusual for a Jewish man. So I would suspect that he probably did have children, but they weren't mentioned. They weren't mentioned. But it is mentioned that his wife accompanied him in his ministry. We see that in Mark 1.29 and 1 Corinthians 9.5. Now, they were a team. Peter and his wife were a ministry team. And it's interesting. I want to suggest to you that a husband and wife team together is much more effective than the husband by themselves. The husband needs his helpmeet to be better. And I can tell you that that is a fact. Peter was part of Jesus's inner circle. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle. And he that inner circle was the one that Jesus poured into the most. And they were with Jesus at some very significant points, like Gethsemane. When Jesus is pleading, if there's any other way that this cup can pass from me, but not my will, but your will, Father, be done. They were with Jesus. That that, that trio, Peter, James, and John, were with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appear and say that you will be making your exodus from this earth, Jesus. And at that point, Jesus kind of splits open and the glory of God comes pouring forth. And he transfigures right before Peter. And Peter, being very impetuous, says, is this it? Is the kingdom going to be established? Should we set up booths now? And of course, Jesus says, no. And these guys disappear. And things go back to normal. And they're not supposed to mention this. Enormous event. Don't mention it. So they were with Jesus at some very spectacular times. Now, Peter's death. We don't know exactly when Peter died but we do know it was under nero's hand and by tradition he was he was murdered probably in about 67 AD about the same time as paul and interestingly enough that was at the time when nero was trying to purge the roman empire of christians origen says uh, early church early church writer said he was crucified upside down unworthy to be to die like christ and i want to suggest to you that jesus himself spoke about how Peter would die. We see this in John 21, verse 18 and 19. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, Peter, you dressed yourself went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. I think he's thinking about the cross. And someone else will dress you, lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify him. Tradition has it, when death came, his wife was martyred with him and was probably martyred first. And as she's going to her death, tradition has it that Peter cries out to her, Remember your Lord. Remember your Lord. And then when he came to Peter, Peter pleaded with the people, Crucify me upside down, for I am not worthy to be crucified as my Savior was crucified. Peter's character, Now, character is something that can be changed. When we come to know Jesus Christ, he can change our character. Temperament, however, is something different. Peter's temperament was always impulsive. He was always outgoing. He was always the first to respond. Peter's character, however, was changed, and it was changed radically. When you look at Peter in the Gospels, and you look at Peter after Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, his character changed and there was a big difference between the gospel peter and the post pentecost peter he was always impetuous he was always impetuous his calling we see was in mark chapter 1 verse 16 through 18 and i'll just read you this very quickly he was a fisherman and as you know peter was walking by the sea of or jesus was walking by the sea of galilee And he saw Simon and Andrew. Now, you think that he just bumped into Simon and Andrew? You think this was just some coincidence? Oh, no. Jesus is God. And Jesus knew exactly who the 12 disciples were going to be. Even Judas, who was going to betray him. He walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And you know what these guys did? They didn't have a dialogue with Jesus. Why should I follow you? They didn't have a dialogue with Jesus. Oh, I have to go back and do this. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, there is a lesson here. He, did this, he displayed his impulsive temperament. There was no hesitation, no scrambling to secure possessions, no backward glances at his past life. Jesus called, and Peter followed Immediately. Immediately. He left the old ways to follow the master, and that's an excellent example for us today. He left all he knew, the security of his fishing business, everything. He left everything to follow Jesus, not knowing where he was going. Jesus didn't say, Hey, follow me, we're going to have a good time. Follow me, we're going to have a party today. Follow me, you're going to get rich and wealthy. Follow- No, it wasn't that. It was follow me and you don't know where we're going. You do not know where you're going. Jesus always calls you to follow him, not observe him from a distance, not observe him from a distance, not to cheer for him, go Jesus. Yay, Jesus, go. He doesn't call you to do that. He doesn't call you to admire him, but he calls you to follow him and to become like him. Romans eight twenty nine puts it this way. He predestined us, or He determined, or He decreed in, in eternity past that those who are saved, the believers, would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Conformed to the likeness of Christ, to follow Him and to be like Him, with no guarantees of what's going to happen on the journey. No guarantees whatsoever. So, Peter's role was this. Now, it wasn't long until the Galilean fishermen rose to a position of leadership. Now, everyone has a role. Peter had a role, and he would became the leader of the disciples, the leader of the disciples. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a gift, a spiritual gift that they are given at the time of salvation that you use within the body of Christ to edify or build up the body of Christ. Defy, a spiritual gift, again, for the umpteenth time, I've defined this many times, are divine enablements distributed by the Holy Spirit as he wills, edify or build up the spirit of Christ. First Peter 4.10 says this. Peter mentions this. He says, as each of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That is what we do, minister to one another. So he rose up as a leader within this group, and he was the first among the 12. First is protos, protos in the Greek, and it can mean first in order or first in prominence. First in order, he was definitely the spokesman of the group. And he would oftentimes speak when the others were silent. I want to give you an example of this. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Now the setting here is that Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now the reason that this is significant, because this is in northern Israel. And in this in this area where Jesus is speaking, there's this area of Pan worship. The Pan God was there. And this Pan God was, of course, a false God, and all these idols of Pan were caved into the rock. And Jesus is standing there looking at this, at this rock face with all these false idols of the Pan God, and he makes this statement. As he entered the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now this isn't contrast to all these idols that are on the face of of the mountain. So they said, this is the group, said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them this question, and this question is a profound question that every human must answer. Every human must answer. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, disciples? And you know who speaks up? Peter speaks up. And he says this, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus says? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And then he says, upon this rock, in verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Your name is Peter. Your name is Petra. Your name is Little Stone. But upon this rock, Jesus pointing to himself, this massive rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is not upon Peter, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ that the church is built. And then he's given the keys to the kingdom. And one of these things, you must remember about the keys to the kingdom, that every time the gospel message was opened up to a people group. The kingdom of God message was opened up to a people group. Peter was there. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was given to the Jews, Peter was there. In Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, when the Spirit of God is given to the Samaritans, Peter was there. In Acts chapter 10, when the Spirit of God came upon the Gentiles, Peter was there. He had the keys to the kingdom to open up the gospel, the kingdom message to each people group. He pro- was promised here, and it was fulfilled, just like Jesus said in the book of Acts. Peter had faith, and he had an impetuous spirit, and he spoke when many others were silent, sometime to his good and sometimes to his bad. Oftentimes, he was rebuked by Jesus because of his quick speaking. So, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Peter had to learn this over his lifetime. So, summary, Peter's role. Now, this will be the time. Summary. First among the twelve, always listed first. He was a spokesman for the disciples. He was the leader. He was the first to answer when not asked. He had the keys to the kingdom. And he had leadership of the early church. We see him very prominent in the first part of Acts. And he finished well. He wrote First and Second Peter. And that is a key to our Christian walk. We want to finish well. We don't want to stumble and stagger and fall and be off to the side at the end of this journey. We start the race. We accelerate in the race. And we burst through the finish line at the end of the race. That's the runner. That's the runner picture. It isn't stumbling. It isn't I'm getting tired. It isn't I'm drifting off to the side, and I don't even make it to the finish line. No, the Christian is called to burst through the finish line and finish strong. He was crucified up to upside down, not worthy to be crucified like Jesus, and he died with his right wife. And I would suggest to you this. Peter truly had a life of significance. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want, to have something that is meaningful? Not just living for the moment for ourselves. He had a life of significance. Why? Because he followed Jesus. He followed the Master. That's what makes life significant and valuable. He left all he knew to gain all he could never have imagined. That's the same for us. We leave the things we know, and we follow the Master, not knowing where we're going to gain an, ima- an, an, an overwhelming uh, inheritance that we have from our God. It is an amazing thing. It says here in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 30, Peter began to say to them, See, we have left all and followed you. Now, he's talking to Jesus again. Nobody else asked this, says this to Jesus, just Peter. So Jesus answered and said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who shall not receive, now hear this word, shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Are there blessings for following the Lord Jesus right now? You bet. You bet. And he goes on to say, houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and lands with persecutions. You might have great persecutions, even though you have great blessings. And in this age to come, an eternal life. The benefits are now temporal, and they are certainly there for the eternal. Now look, at when you're looking at eternity, and you're looking at the brevity of life, and you look at life as but a vapor, here for a moment and gone. Does it make any sense that you put all your eggs in this earth basket and ignore God that who you're going to spend eternity either with or separated from? It doesn't make any sense to put all your eggs here and say, I'm going to live for me now. It doesn't make any sense. It makes sense to say, I will follow you like these disciples did, not knowing where I'm going, not knowing what the future holds. But I know that I am secure with you, Lord Jesus. I will choose to follow you. Now, to live a life of significance, we must move from our area of comfort and security, the known, and step into Christ's world, the unknown, and I will suggest you prepare for the ride of your life. And serving Christ will always be uncomfortable, and if you're going to really serve our Lord, God will always, always stretch you. He always stretches you into the area of discomfort. It may be uncomfortable, but remember, for a life of significance, remember, your growth is the goal, not your comfort. Please remember that. Please remember that. Peter and the other disciples learned this, and we must learn this also especially if you want to have a life of significance. A life of significance is found in following the master. Not going my way, not going the world's way, not going my friend's way, but following the master. You will have a life of significance. And I'm I'm telling you, you don't know where you're going to end up. But he is with you through it all. You will never have a life of significance if you play it safe, Refuse to follow and trust Jesus. If you stay on the fringe and you are a casual observer, uh -uh. that will not be a life of significance. We must move into the unknown and hold on for the ride of your life. For the ride of your life is purpose. How the book speaks to us today. Again, 105 verses on the theme of suffering. Peter's purpose is to remind Christians that painful times are not an end in themselves, and there is hope in spite of suffering. There is hope in spite of disappointment. There is hope in spite of failures. Look at Peter's life. He denied the master. He often spoke when he shouldn't speak. But there was a hope for Peter, and Peter finished well. He finished trusting in God. Especially when you're suffering, especially when you're disappointed, especially when persecution comes. I will trust in the Lord until I die, until I am not here anymore. That's what we are called to do. Now, with this introduction, in the first Peter, we'll read verses one and two. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've allowed us to open the words of this book again, and that we can study the life of a of a of a of a man that finished well a man who spoke often sometimes for greatness and sometimes not for greatness it's a reflection of us lord may we learn from peter treasures that we can apply to our life holy spirit i ask that you would speak to each person in this room today and touch us in our area of need and may we leave here changed because we've come in contact with the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 1 and 2. Again, Peter, a man in his mission. In this world, a Christian must know who you are. Now, Chuck Swindoll has this thing. Know who you are. Be who you are. Act like who you are. First of all, know who you are. You are a Christian. He's going to talk about the elect. I want to approach this from this is a privileged position. This is a privilege. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Know who you are. And then be who you are. Be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And then when you're conformed to the likeness of Christ, act like who you are. Live out your Christian faith to the world that is around you. Let them see what a Christian looks like. Know who you are. Be who you are. Act like who you are. Verse 1 and 2. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the diaspora, Nero persecution happening all over the Roman Empire, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect. Oh, you're special. You elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit of God, for obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. And if you write in your Bible, write right in there, Trinity. Trinity, grace to you and peace be multiplied, especially in your suffering and in your disappointment. Peter knew who he was. He was an apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word. Sheliak is the Hebrew word, but it simply means sent one. Sent one. Now I want you to realize that today there's this big movement of apostles and prophets coming back into the into the church for power and position and that sort of thing. I want to suggest to you something. There are no apostles of Christ in existence today. How do I know? Well, for the following reason. In order to be apostle of Christ, you had to to have seen the resurrected Jesus, Acts 1, verse 22. You had to be called by Jesus personally. They, They were all called personally. He, they must perform signs and wonders to authenticate their mission. We said it, see that in Second Corinthians 12, 12. And they form the foundation of the church. Now, I want to ask you a question. If the apostles and the prophets form the foundation of the church, how many times is the foundation poured on your home? One time. In a building, one time. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking about people that are saved. He's talking about people that said yes to the Lord Jesus. I believe you died in my place. I receive you as my savior. You took my sin debt on the cross. I believe that. I receive that. I'm in your family now. That's what he's talking about here having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And notice who the cornerstone is. The most important stone in the foundation that keeps everything level. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Verse 21, he says this, in whom the whole building, we are pictured as a building, Are being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, everyone who believes, has been fitted into your own little brick, your own little rock, or however you fit into this building. You are in the building. And I believe if you're put into this building, you are secure. The rock doesn't come back out. You are secure in the building, built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In the Old Testament, God tabernacled, shikened, dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and the temple, and the Shekinah glory was present. But oh, in the New Testament, when the Shekinah glory left the nation of Israel and never came back, in Ezekiel. So the Spirit of God leaves. He's not going into captivity because his people have been disobedient. The Spirit of God the Shekinah, the glory of God, the light of God returns in the New Testament in the Jesus, in the form of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the light of the world. Remember John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And the glory of God comes back in the form of Jesus. And then we now are the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the glory of God, the kabod of God, the glory of God dwells within each one of us. That is where the glory of God dwells. What a privilege. In the Old Testament, they'd seen the Shekinah, but those Jewish people were constantly going off in spite of seeing the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. But we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. What an advantage we have. What an incredible privilege that we have. He is, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation already being built. There are no apostles of Christ today, but there are apostles of the church, and several are mentioned in the the New Testament. Apostles of the church simply means a sent one, a missionary, or a church planter. It's not a position of authority and power. It's a position of service. Position of service. So, There's something going on today in Christendom where the church is going to usher in the kingdom. So we're going to make things better and better and better. We're going to usher in the kingdom. And I've spoke about this before, so it might be fresh in your minds. But it's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And it means this, that we're going to take over, usher in the kingdom. And they have something called the Seven Mountain Mandate, where we're taking over the seven pillars of the the culture, government, education, entertainment, that sort of thing. Sounds good, sounds good, but it isn't what the Bible says, okay? So the New Apostolic Reformation members claim that Christians must yield to these apostles and prophets. You must come under submission to these new apostles of Christ and prophets, because we're bringing you a word from God. Now, what word do you have from God that you know unequivocally is from God? It's in your hands, or it could be on in your, in your phone. A lot of people, they have their phone or their tablet now or something. But we have it here. It's the Word of God. We know it. We know it. So these are self-appointed apostles and prophets. It's not what Scripture teaches. What does Scripture teach? Well, it teaches this. It's not going to get better and better and better. Now, let me ask you a question. Has things on earth gotten better and better and better over the epochs of time? No, man has become more and more depraved. Look at our nation that was built on Christian principles, and we have booted Christ out, and what has happened to our nation? It's taken a nosedive. It's taken a nosedive. We kill babies. We, we, we now have homosexuality and marriages that are, that, are, that are ordained within the culture. And if you go against that, you are intolerant, you're bigoted, you're not loving and that sort of thing. No, we're just telling people the truth. This is God's word. You are jeopardizing your eternal future by embracing this. Don't go there. It's a matter of loving them and telling them the truth. It's not getting better and better. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns, and he's coming back, folks, he's coming back to a devastated earth. How do I know this? Because what the Bible tells us, there's going to be seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments in the book of revelation and guess what one we're getting we're in 1 Peter it's not long until we'll be in revelation anyway jesus comes back now look at when he comes back it isn't the church that makes it better the church is going to be gone the church is going to be raptured out of here jesus ushers in his kingdom he establishes his kingdom it's his power it's his authority it's his church that is going to be taken out and then coming back with him and he's going to be the one doing the battle Let me show you. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we see these words. This is speaking of Jesus coming back to take authority over the earth. Now I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. Now a white horse in scripture is always a conquering king's horse. And Jesus is the one. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and we saw that in Revelation chapter 1 when John saw Jesus in this glorified state, eyes like a flame of fire, hair white like wool, looks just like a picture of the Father in in Ezekiel. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, many diadems, king's crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Well, what does that mean? Well, Isaiah 63, verse 2 and 3, tells us, "...is the blood of his enemies, and his name is called the Word of God." And John 1, 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." And 1, 14, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." Speaking of the Lord Jesus, "...and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen," White and clean, we see that these are the people in Revelation 4.4, 4, followed him on white horses. Notice, followed him. I want to show you who does the fighting. Now, this would be one time when we go, get him, Jesus. Go get him, Jesus. We're following you. He says this, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. And he himself, now who is he himself? It's not us. It's not the church doing it. This is Jesus doing this. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming back to establish his kingdom and putting down all rebellion forever, forever that comes up against him. Now, Satan will be released for a short time at the end of the millennial reign, but that will be very quickly also be put down. Jesus craves and establishes his kingdom. And in Isaiah chapter 9, of his kingdom there shall be no end. No other king is coming up once Jesus establishes his kingdom. This thing will be established by Jesus. It is not the church that's ushering in the kingdom. It is Jesus who establishes his kingdom. Let me press on. What does the scripture warn us about? It warns us about false apostles, particularly at the end. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. 13. Such are false apostles and deceitful workers, transforming themselves, themselves, into the apostles of Christ. Why? Power. Prestige, control. Notice it's themselves that trans transform themselves. Not God appointing them, it's themselves. Revelation two, two says this I know your works and your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles, and are not, and have found them liars. Jesus Himself speaking to that church and commending it for pointing out those who are false teachers and false apostles. Look at, We must recognize and warn about false apostles, false prophets, false teachers. That is our duty. Ephesians 5.11 tells us this. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Not turn a blind eye, not pretend it's not there, but expose them, just like the Apostle John did in 3 John. 3 John, there's only one, one chapter. 3 John, when he was dealing with uh, Diotrephes, Diotrephes was saying, don't accept John. He's telling his church, don't accept him. If you accept him, the Apostle John, we will ex- I will excommunicate you from this church. John knew about this. You know what John says? He says, I will deal with Diotrephes who think who seeks the preeminence. He did not turn a blind eye. I will deal with him. Don't listen to him. Peter was a genuine apostle of Christ. He is writing from Rome to a persecuted church, dispersed in the Roman Empire. It is important when you are being persecuted that you know who you are. You are the elect. Notice that Peter gives them a very special title. You are the elect, the chosen, a huge privilege. You are the people of God. I want you to remember that First and 2 Peter, Hebrews, James, First and 2 Peter, and Jude are written to a predominantly Jewish audience. These are Jewish epistles written to Jewish Christians. and he, And these people knew, Israel knew very well what elect and chosen was because the nation was elect and chosen in order to show God to the world. And the church is elect and chosen to show Jesus Christ to the world. That is our job. All who put their trust in Jesus, hear this, all who put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior are called the elect of God. What a privilege. You need to know that you are a privileged person, particularly when you're going through suffering particularly when you're going through persecution. And you know what else he says? Because you are the elect of God, he also says this, know who you are as the elect, know who you are as the sanctified. That was the second thing, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and in sanctification of the Spirit. God helps his chosen by the Holy Spirit's power to obey the gospel and commit themselves to Christ with all of your heart. Know who you are. You are chosen. You are the elect. You are set apart for the master's work. Notice who helps you do this. It's the triunity of God. It's the Godhead. Elect by the foreknowledge of God. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit for, for obedience. To follow and do what God wants you to do. It's a sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ for obedience. And the sprinkling of blood is what purifies us from all sin. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 15 and verse 22. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in your salvation. We need to know this, that God loves us, particularly when we are suffering, particularly when we are disappointed particularly when we don't understand what in the world is going on. I don't understand this, Lord. I must understand that God loves me, and he's proven it by giving a son. You are special. You are called, and you are the people of God, called by his name. Not only that, you are the chosen of God, elect according to foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? It means prognosis ever hear what's the prognosis of this disease what is the prognosis pro means before gnosis means to know know before god knows from eternity past those who are being saved god is outside of time god knows beforehand exactly what will happen and its and its consequences he knows everything remember he's omniscient he knows he knows all things Every event in the world, nine one one, God knew it. Every war, every event, every tragedy, every good thing, every bad thing, nothing catches God by surprise. He is all-knowing. Every event in our lives, our personal lives, before the creation of the world, God knew. Now, the question that has to be asked is this. If God knew all the terrible consequences of evil and death, why did he create with that in mind, with that potential? Why did he do that? Now, this has been a stumbling block for a lot of people, and many people have left the faith because of this very question. And the the simple answer is this. God wanted a a creature, a being with free will. God created man because he willed to have the presence of a being who is free to choose him. Now look at God freely chose to come to this earth to die for us. And he wants a person, I called out people who will freely choose to come to him, to come to him. So we freely choose him to love and to worship him, to obey and fellowship with him, to serve and reign with him in his foreknowledge. He did what was absolutely perfect and correct for planet Earth. God did this. He orchestrated it. He created the environment where free choice and free will existed. Christians must know who you are. Now look at Peter says in knowing you who you are, he says, grace and peace be multiplied. Now he doesn't say that multiplied often. There's a lot of times where it's grace and peace are in these introductions. But he says, be multiplied. Why? Because these people are in suffering and they need to know God's favor and God's peace in the suffering. Now, in summary, in summary, what we can learn from Peter. Number one, in persecution and suffering, know who you are. You are a child of God. He knows where you are. Know who you are. Know that you are not forgotten, that you are not abandoned and that you are not alone, and that God loves you, and he chose you in his foreknowledge and knows where you are. Peter knew failure. We know failure. We have not lived this life out perfect. Anybody perfect here? Absolutely not. None of us are perfect. Peter knew failure. But we. Peter knew this. Failure does not determine your future. Failure does not determine your future. God forgave Peter and he forgives us of our sins if we confess our sins. He was faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Peter knew brokenness and he could encourage those who were broken. And we are to encourage those who are broken. Peter knew hope and encouragement are available to everyone who believes. Hope and encouragement are available to everyone who believes. For all time, Jesus restored Peter. Peter had denied Christ, and Peter was restored by Jesus. When we do something wrong, Jesus restores us when we confess and repent of our sins. Don't let your past determine your future. Learn from your past. Accept the forgiveness that God gives you and press on towards the goal to win the prize. For those who know who you are, we must realize that we living right now are in the dispersion. We are not home. That's why it's uncomfortable here. And it's growing more and more uncomfortable for Christians here because the world is becoming more and more anti-Christ, at least the world we live in. The rest of the world's already there. You're in an Islamic country, which is which is you know over a billion people. You're not liked. Matter of fact, you're hated. If you're in a Hindu nation like India, you're hated. You're hated. The, these people already know what it is to experience persecution and suffering. We have not known this, but even in this country, we are starting to feel the ripple of being rejected by a culture that doesn't want God doesn't want the true God. We are not home yet. While we are here, let Peter's letter be a healing balm to your spirit, to your spirit. Grace and peace to you be multiplied. And may we learn from Peter the man and his mission to those who are suffering. May this book speak to each one of us through the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Peter and James and John and all these writers of the New Testament that help us to know how to live on this side, what is expected of us as believers, and that we are empowered to carry out what is expected by the Holy Spirit. You have given us the ability to be victors not victims. So no matter what comes at us, Lord, help us to remember who we are. Know who you are. Be who you are. Act like who you are. We are children of God. And may we carry out our mission, like Peter, running through the tape all the way to the end until we are home. Again, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please penetrate each one of our hearts in our area of need. In Jesus' name, amen.